Welcome to the Manor. Welcome back to the Twin Terrors, Macabre Manor of Mead, Metal, and Mayhem. I'm Jody. And I'm James. What are we talking about today, Jody? This episode, uh, we are going to talk about, uh, because this year is the 40th anniversary of a movie called Star Beast. Ooh, or, wait, or, Star or, Beast? Or, or, or what? Yeah, I'll, I'll explain that. <laughs> huh? <laughs> of course, I'm assuming that when we actually put this out there, you're going to have the actual title. <laughs> well, we don't have to. <laughs> Uh, but I'm thinking if people see it, Star Beast, what the hell is that? They're going to skip this episode. Uh, true. <laughs> now, question though, is a Star Beast anything like a Hose Beast? Um, I, you know, I think, I'd, I think I'd rather make out with the Star Beast. Good point. All right. So <laughs> tell me about this Star Beast then. <laughs> okay. I'll go ahead and say it. As you probably figured out from the title that's going to be up on all of, all of our podcasting apps that we're on. <laughs> um, this is the 40th anniversary of the movie Alien. Oh, Alien! Of yeah, course. yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, Alien goes back to a guy named Dan O'Bannon. And we've talked a little bit about Dan O'Bannon before. Uh, do you remember when we did? Dan O'Bannon. Let's yes. see. Not the governor of Indiana. That was a different O'Bannon. Yes. So I'm going to assume it was almost a year ago, a Halloween time. Yes. We discussed that spookiest of movies with zombies. Mm. I, you know, I think we did mention it during Night of the Living Dead, but um, I think we also mentioned him during the episode on Halloween. Yeah, on, that's on the what movie. I meant. That's yeah. what I said. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 Totally, sure. totally, totally what you said. <laughs> Okay, so uh, while Dan O'Bannon is at uh, film school there at uh, uh, University of Southern California, uh, he meets this guy, John Carpenter. Um, he also meets this guy named Ron Cobb. Now, um, Ron Cobb will come up again later, um, but he meets John Carpenter, and he gets involved in uh, Carpenter's student film. But this grows from being a student film into a feature film which was a movie called Dark Star. It was a box office failure. Um, I guess they wrote it as a comedy and nobody was laughing at the jokes. <laughs> well, <laughs> if a joke falls in the forest and nobody laughs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But on this, uh, on this movie, Dark Star, Dan O'Bannon was the co-writer. He did the cinematography. He edited the movie, was the production designer, special effects supervisor and Ron Cobb who I, I mentioned a couple minutes ago also worked on it as well as Dan O'Bannon starring in this movie Dan O'Bannon was he, he was dissatisfied with the way Dark Star turned out obviously the box office failure people didn't laugh at the jokes so he decides he's going to rewrite the film but he wants to rewrite it as a horror movie and he wants to he wants he wants the alien in it to be more realistic uh, looking he kind of, um, in this interview, uh, and, I, and I pulled, I probably should have mentioned this already, um, I pulled most of this information from a uh, documentary featurette, uh, whatever, on the Alien Anthology Blu-ray box set, which I think came out in 2009. Um, it's called The Beast Within, Making Alien. Um, but there is a little bit that I've pulled from a 1999 kind of behind-the-scenes documentary called Alien Legacy, uh, which came out around the time of 
Alien Resurrection, I think a little bit after Alien Resurrection. So Dan O'Bannon decides he's going to rewrite this movie. Uh, he wants a better looking alien instead of, as he referred to it, a beach ball like they had in Dark <laughs> Star. And uh, for bat- lack of a better name, he calls it Star Beast. So that's, that's where Star Beast came from. So there's a guy uh, named Ronald Shusett who saw Dark Star. Um, he liked it, and so he called up uh, John Carpenter and talked to him a little bit. He called up Dan O'Bannon, and they kind of hit it off and became friends. And one of the things they talked about was uh, Dan O'Bannon said, yeah, he said, I got this script I, I just started working on. I want to rewrite Dark Star and, and make it a horror film. And Ron Shusett said, oh, cool. Um, he said, well, maybe I could help you with that if you help me with this other thing I've just got the rights to. It's a a story by uh, Philip K. Dick. <laughs> and it's, it's uh, we can remember it for you wholesale, which came out in the late 80s as Total Recall with, or, or Total Recall, as Ron Chusset says it. <laughs> <laughs> um, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and... And, uh, and a three-breasted alien. And a three-breasted alien, yeah. Um, oh, uh, uh, Sharon Stone was in it too, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah. So Ron, she said, Dan O'Bannon, you know, they, they start comparing notes on stuff and everything. And they, they look at it and they say, you know, this horror movie, Star Beast, would probably be cheaper to make. So why don't we focus on that one for now? And we'll come back to the other one later because that's going to be more expensive. And between the two of them, Dan O'Bannon was the only one who had actually made a movie at that point. <laughs> Every bit helps. <laughs> yeah. But before they get very far with working on Star Beast, a Chilean filmmaker named Alejandro Jodorowsky, and I just butchered that name, but that's close. Um, he He had also seen Dark Star. And he comes along and he recruits Dan O'Bannon to come to Paris and work on his adaptation of Frank Herbert's novel Dune. So O'Bannon goes to Paris, and while he's there working on it, Jodorowsky had put him kind of in charge of the special effects because he had, for some reason, he had liked the effects in Dark Star. So while he's there, Dan O'Bannon meets a British artist named Chris Foss, who was known for his illustrations of sci-fi novel covers. And he also meets a guy, an artist, uh, who was actually, um, he was attached to the Dune project, but he was also doing a showing in Paris. Um, he's, he was from uh, Zurich, Switzerland. Ooh, and ooh, this one. Uh, I actually don't even know how to pronounce his last name. Is it a, a long eye or a short eye? Uh, well, okay, we'll, we'll say it's Giger. Okay. Yeah, H.R. Giger. Yeah, uh, good, because if I mispronounced it, we'd have to drink, and I was so on a mispronounce that. <laughs> uh, but O'Bannon was, was really impressed by both men's artwork, especially Giger's. After several months, um, and I've, I've heard anywhere from like six months to a year, that O'Bannon was in France working on this Dune project. Uh, eventually it falls apart. And O'Bannon comes back to LA and he doesn't, he, I mean, he's got no money. Um, he doesn't have anywhere to stay. So he winds up staying with Ron Chusset. So he's, he's, he starts he's working, you know, he's, he said, I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta sell a script. So he goes back to working on Star Beast and he doesn't, he doesn't like the title. He had, he can't think of anything better. And uh, as he's kind of plugging away at it one night, late at night, he says, there's one word of dialogue that just keeps, he just keeps seeing it. And it, it jumps off the page at him. 
lands on his face and jumps. No, no, wait, sorry. Ah! <laughs> Hello, my baby. Hello, my honey. Um, anyway, the word alien keeps popping up in the dialogue, and he finally realizes, hey, wait, that's it. That's the name right there. That's the title of the movie. Braun Shusette wakes up in the middle of the night, one night, and he says, Dan, I've got an idea. Dan's like, what is it? He goes, the alien screws one of them. He's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, no, the thing jumps on his face and it shows a tube down his throat and it lays its egg. And, <laughs> and then later oh. on, it comes bursting out of his stomach. That's, that sounds gross, but that still sounds way better than my first image of <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So they had uh, probably within the next three weeks, they got most of the story down. Uh, shopped it around, uh, but either no one wanted it or they were offering bad deals for it. So eventually they take it to Roger Corman's studio and st Corman's studio makes an offer. Before they sign with Roger Corman's studio, a friend of Dan O'Bannon, uh, a guy named Mark Haggard, uh, he gets a copy of the script. He calls him that night. He, he gets it, reads it that, that same night, calls him up, says, I can get financing for the movie. I said, well, we're we're about to sign with Corman. He's like, no, 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 no. Give me, give me a little bit of time. I can, I can get financing for this. So like, all right, you know, we'll, we'll give you two weeks. Mark Haggard was friends with writer director, Walter Hill. Walter Hill had just formed a production company with uh, Gordon Carroll and David Geiler. And they, they, uh, they had called it Brandywine films. Mark Haggard gives Walter Hill a copy of the script and he shows it to Geiler. And they both thought it was horrible, but they loved the chestburster scene. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Brandywine Films takes the script to 20th Century Fox, and studio head Alan Ladd Jr. Uh, thought it had potential. And he says, okay, we'll, we'll make the movie. Well, Hill and Geiler rewrite the entire script. Now, O'Bannon will later accuse the, the two of them of trying to claim full credit for the screenplay and cut him completely out. And I'm going to go into that. That's, that's kind of going to be a little bit of the thread that I'm going with here on this. This was something that O'Bannon said. This was kind of why O'Bannon wasn't happy about some of what they were trying to do. He said, as Walter himself said in one of the, his speeches he gave us during pre-production, the greatest thing I have to bring to this project is I don't know anything about science fiction and I don't like it. <laughs> And that was certainly reflected in the various drafts that he did. <laughs> you know, I see a certain angle of that where you're going to make this then something accessible to more people, even right. non-sci-fi geeks. But it yeah. sucks. <laughs> According to Ron Shusette, the general consensus was that Hill and Geiler's many rewrites, and I think they did something like eight, uh, that they got progressively worse. And the only thing of any value that they contributed was having one of the crew be a robot or, or an android. Now, the script did sit there for a little while because sci-fi wasn't really the hot commodity. And then, can, can you guess what happens next? I, I could make several guesses, but they will all be inane. Well, what happened next was the summer of 1977. Oh, well, I don't think it's then. Would it be summer? Is that still technically spring? When's May? Uh, May's still technically spring, but... It was it was Memorial Day weekend, so it was heading into. I mean, you still uh, gotcha. still had like three weeks, but dun, 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 or whatever the actual notes are. Yeah, Star Wars came out in May of that year, 
which was also released by 20th Century Fox. And suddenly, sci-fi was the thing. <laughs> and so they could kind of strike while the iron was hot. Fox greenlit production on Alien because it was probably the only sci-fi script they actually had laying around that they were, you know, contemplating making. So Fox greenlights the movie. Dan O'Bannon thinks he would direct it. The Brandywine films and Fox thought otherwise. First, they offered it to Walter Hill, obviously, from Brandywine Films. Uh, then they uh, offered it to a few other people, uh, Robert Aldrich. Part of the reason they didn't go with Robert Aldrich, when he was asked how he was going to handle the facehugger scene, said he'd just throw a liver at the guy, actor's face. What? Yeah, one of the pivotal scenes, and I'll just throw a liver at his face. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Next. <What> the... <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Uh, so one of the other guys they approached was Peter Yates. He had directed several episodes of the TV series The Saint, which had starred Roger Moore. Roger Moore, yeah. Yeah. Um, he also directed... Wait, hold on. Wait, wait. Got to do it. James Bond. Actually, when I, when I wrote that note, I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, you kept going pretty quick. I don't know if you're going to give me time. <laughs> I was just gonna. I was just gonna see if you'd throw it in there anyway. Sticks <laughs> like yeah. a liver to the face. Yeah. So uh, David Geiler had seen a movie called The Duelist at Con, and he went to speak to Sandy Lieberson, who was the head of Fox Films in Europe, and expressed interest in the Duelist's director, a guy named Ridley Scott. Gordon Carroll and Walter Hill had also seen the film. And we're quite impressed with what Scott had accomplished. Uh, Tom Skerritt, who, of course, is an alien, uh, he almost turned it down. Yes. Because, but he did think Dan O'Bannon's script read really well. Uh, in fact, he, he said that they weren't going to give him enough money. It might as well be an Ed Wood movie, more or less. They weren't going to give it enough. But yeah. he, he saw The Duelists. And because of that, he was impressed with Ridley Scott's work. And, hell yeah, I'm blown away. Let's do this, bitch. Yeah, yeah, actually, um, that was... Maybe paraphrased. But. No, well, yeah, probably. Um, actually, I think that was most of my note on uh, Tom Skerritt. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, I mean, that was, that was the thing. Skerritt liked the script, but he, he didn't, you know, when, when he heard the initial budget, he was like, you're not going to be able to make it on that budget. And so he turned it down, and then Ridley Scott got attached to it. But Ridley Scott got the script immediately said he'd do it because he was in London. I think they sent him the script. He read it. He was in Hollywood 24 hours later. He immediately came to Hollywood to, to talk. Dan O'Bannon was skeptical. Uh, even though after screening the duelist, he thought Scott did a good job, but the duelist wasn't sci-fi. And part of O'Bannon's thing was, you know, you've already got Gordon Carroll or not Gordon Carroll, Walter Hill, um, who, you know, Sci-fi is not his forte. Apparently, none of the guys at Brandywine, you know, were really that into sci-fi. But yeah, Fox initially they set the budget around four point two million dollars. So Ridley Scott, he 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 meets with him. He says, "Yeah, I'll do the movie." He goes back to London, comes back a couple weeks later with storyboards, and Fox was so impressed with the storyboards they doubled the budget to like eight point four million. And that was the other thing that, you know, when Tom Skerritt heard they had doubled the budget and he had a chance to work with Ridley Scott. Yeah. That's what made Tom Skerritt say, okay, I'll do it. I like him too. He's a, he's an excellent actor. Yeah. 
so Ridley Scott actually had a vision for the film, which was influenced by uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, a little bit by Star Wars, and a good bit by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> you know, I see that. I do too. He said he felt that Alien was kind of a pretty straightforward movie, um, similar to a 1932 Boris Karloff movie called The Old Dark House, which is, you know, one of these suspense films or whatever, where you got a bunch of people that they're, they're trapped in a house for the night. And all of a sudden, you know, somebody gets, somebody disappears and, you know, this, that, and the other kind of thing. Anyway, he, he felt that getting everything else right would be pretty easy as far as, you know, casting and the sets and everything like that. He felt that the hard part would be the creature. And uh, upon uh, his first meeting with Dan O'Bannon, Dan O'Bannon had a copy of Giger's book, The Necronomicon, not the Necronomicon that's in all the H.P. Lovecraft stories or the Necronomicon (laughs) that you can go to the bookstore and buy that's, you know, a a fabrication of the the book from the H.P. Lovecraft stories. Or the Uh, Necronomicon, which is a book of evil recipes. Yes. That's an awesome website. I wish I had the skill to make some of those. <laughs> but anyway, he, he had a copy of Giger's uh, art book, I guess kind of like coffee table book or collection of Giger's art in this book. Were um, we going to describe Giger's artwork? Uh, biomechanical is the word that usually comes up. It's very disturbing. I was going to say erotic. It, it biomechanical is. type because yeah, it's very, yeah. Yeah, it's it's very um, erotic. It's sexual. It's, yeah, it's um, it's juxtaposition a of, of biology, human with mechanical and yeah, alien type of. Yeah, it's, it's very it, yeah, so yeah, fits. Yeah. If if you now if you've seen Alien, then you yeah you you kind of have an idea of his artwork. Ridley Scott, as soon as he sees Giger's artwork, he knew that was exactly what he needed. Dan O'Bannon said the idea that came to me looking at Giger's paintings was, you know, if somebody could get this guy to design a monster movie, you'd have something completely original that no one had ever done before. And that's, you know, that that was Ridley Scott's thought, you know. Well, Fox hated Giger's artwork. They thought it was too ghastly and repulsive, uh, according to uh, Ron Chousset. Well, of course they did. Sounds like Mary yeah. Longford was in charge of their... <laughs> yeah. Oh, that that episode's not going to come out till way after this one. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I know. I was just thinking, wait, wait, uh, foreshadowing, <laughs> foreshadowing. But everybody else on the film fought for Giger's involvement. With Scott going as far as telling the studio when they finally said they'd at least talk concept on the art, he said no. That was exactly what he wanted for the film. Another thing that was influencing kind of where Ridley Scott was going with his with his vision of what the film was going to look like uh was a french magazine and i'm going to mispronounce this even though i've heard it pronounced and i and i, I kind of have it in my head how it's supposed to be pronounced metal herlon it's an illustrated magazine it's 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 a comic magazine but it's not you know comic books like we think of like marvel and dc it's more kind of the artwork you would get with graphic novels and in fact and i don't think i wrote the guy's full name down um actually i may have and a set of notes that I gave up on. and um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Jean Girard, also known as uh, Mobius. He was also, I think, attached to the Dune Project, but he did a lot of artwork for this Metal Hurlant magazine. Metal Hurlant is published in the U.S., 
under the name heavy metal. Heavy metal. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like heavy metal the way you described it. But. Yes. Yeah. That's the original is Metal Hurlant, and it's, you know, also published here under the name heavy metal. And another connection with that is in the movie heavy metal that came out, what, 81 or whatever. One of the segments, uh, the Gremlins, the one with the, the, the bomber, the B-52 oh, yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah. Dan O'Bannon wrote that. Oh, neat. Yeah. Wow. And he actually, that was one of the things that he had written, I think, around the time he was working on Alien. But he, uh, yeah, he, he actually was planning on making that into a movie and they wound up using it in heavy metal, the movie. So Ridley Scott goes and he meets with Giger and Giger says, oh, I'll, I'll redesign the, the alien. And Scott goes, no, 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 no. We want this right here. Exactly what you, <laughs> exactly <laughs> what you drew. We want this. So he, he did redesign it a little bit. He took the penises out of it. Um, be, because if you look at the original artwork, the back of the, because it's got that elongated head and the back of the head is a penis head. And the tail, it's it's got the it's holding its tail out in front of it, and it's the tail ends in a penis shaft. Um, a penis joke's going to come up again a little bit later too. Um, well, just hold on to it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hold on to that penis joke. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that Giger said, uh, he, he said, I didn't want it to have eyes because it makes the monster more dangerous. It's more scary because you never know where the monster is looking. Now, and, see, to me, it made it more inhuman too. Yes. I liked. Yes. That's the other thing. But part of that was the lighting and it was because it was so darkly lit and you saw so little of the alien throughout the movie. You don't actually see that the dome of the skull is translucent. When you see it in bright light, you can actually see that underneath it, there is the upper portion of a human skull. Yeah, isn't that one of the things uh, Ridley Scott liked? Like, you don't want to show yes. too much because you get used to it. And yes, you, yeah, you want yeah, it to and, be, yeah. Well, and because you see, you because you don't see everything, your brain kind of goes into you know the, the, <laughs> fills in the fear. It full it fills it in, yeah. So, but yeah, if you if you look at the actual suit in full light you can see that where where there would be eyes it is actually like a human skull with eye sockets so the painting this was based on we've talked about a little bit um the painting in the book was called necronome number four and he had painted it in 1976 and he designed all three stages of the alien in the movie uh the face hugger the chest burster and the adult alien plus uh, he would also wind up designing the derelict ship that they find in the movie. Now, Dan O'Bannon also brought in his friend, Ron Cobb, that he had met at USC and had, had worked on Dark Star with him and John Carpenter, and British artist, Chris Foss, that he and Giger had, had known working on the Dune project. And Cobb wound up doing all the interiors of the Nostromo, which is the, the, uh, the ship that they're, they're on, while uh, Chris Foss designed all the ship exteriors. So they've got the story and the director, visualization of the film, everything set, casting was next. And the script, as Dan O'Bannon and Ron Shusett had written it, had all male characters. Uh, but they had included a note saying that any of the characters could be cast as female. Also, according to Ron Shusett, Ridley Scott picked most of the cast from actors he felt would need little directing, which would free him up to focus more on the visuals of the film. The cast was comprised of 
actress Veronica Cartwright as the character Lambert. Uh, Lambert, I think, was the navigator. And she had originally read for the for Ripley twice, but didn't know she was actually cast for Lambert until she went to her first wardrobe fitting. <laughs> what, what, what's this? What? <laughs> yeah. She later kind of said, it bothered me a lot that she was so weepy all the time, but they convinced me I was the audience's fears. I was a reflection of what the audience was feeling. Huh. Well, I never picked up on that, but yeah. Yeah. I, I can see yeah. That. Tom Skerritt, who we've talked about earlier, he was cast as Dallas, who was the ship's captain. Also cast was uh, Yafet Koto as Parker, one of the mechanic engineer characters. He also played, uh, get, get ready, get ready for it. Get ready. Re- get ready with the theme music. He also played the villain in my favorite James Bond film, Live and Let Die. Yeah. We'll have to talk about James Bond sometime because yes. that, that wouldn't be my pick as a favorite, but I can see why it is a, a favorite. Yeah. Harry Dean Stanton was cast as Brett. He was the other engineer mechanic kind of character. He said, when I first met Ridley, the first meeting we had, I said, I don't like science fiction films or monster pictures. I opened with that, which was obviously a good opening. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. Yeah, no, I, uh, Harry Dean Stanton's a great actor. He's uh, he's going to bring his A-game to whatever he does, you know. John Hurt, who we mentioned earlier, was cast as Kane, uh, who was, uh, I believe, first officer on the Nostromo. Also cast, old Bilbo Baggins. Oh, wait. <laughs> Ian Holm. Ian Holm was cast as Ash, the robot. Strangely enough, he was the older Bilbo in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings films. He played Frodo Baggins in the BBC radio production of Lord of the Rings. So he actually played both Bagginses. He did. And I think you'll hear that again also in an upcoming episode uh, when we talk about Hobbit. Or, yeah. Or something. I know it's discussed somewhere in one of the many episodes <laughs> that we have coming up. Yes. He had more of a theater background. He had done a little bit of film, but not much. And somebody else who also had a little bit of, or who had theater background and had never done a film before was the person they cast in the role of Ripley, uh, who I believe is uh, second officer on the Nostromo, third in, third in line of succession there. That was Sigourney Weaver. Yeah, she'd had uh, like one or two really small roles between TV and movie, and that, that was it. Yeah. Um, she said... I got this audition. They'd sent me the script, which, of course, not knowing the Rambaldi designs, and I'll, I'll get to what that is. That's, uh, that's a reference to Carlo Rambaldi, and I'll talk a little bit about him later. I pictured this big yellow blob of gelatin chasing these people. Nothing <laughs> as elegant as what it turned out to be. <laughs> Ridley Scott said, I met Sigourney in the last go in New York. She'd come recommended because of a play she'd been doing on Broadway. I didn't see the play. I just met her. I was very impressed by her height, and she was a very impressive character, very intelligent. My intuition, always in casting, is from the second they walked through the door, I knew somehow this was her. Um, and Ron Chusette would say, uh, went on to say, they screen tested many people, but she was dynamite. Uh, you saw it right there on the screen test, as you, later, as you saw later in the movie. This was her very first film. It's all behind the eyes. So, and I think she said somewhere that that was um, somebody, I think it was maybe in Tom Skerritt or somebody, you know, told her emote through the eyes. 
Uh, so they start shooting in Shepperton Studios in England on July 5th, 1978. Shooting would wrap up October 21st of that year. The premise, which we really haven't talked about too much, truckers in space who encounter an alien signal from an unknown planet. Space trucking, come space. on, to bam, <laughs> Now that episode's out. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, space trucking. <laughs> Anyway, they encounter this alien signal from an unknown planet and set down to investigate. Uh, one of the crew is attacked by something that attaches to his face, deposits an embryo inside his chest. After he is brought back on board, it bursts out of him and picks off the most of the crew one by one. The only three... Oh, uh, by the way, spoilers. Yes. <laughs> yeah, spoilers. Well, that's why I'm just kind of running through this because I'm not really going to go well, much into it. In 40 years. Yeah, you if you don't know it. the plot... <laughs> Uh, the only three it manages to not kill are Ash, who, uh, like we've said, turns out to be a robot. And he is destroyed by Parker uh, when Ash tries to kill Ripley. It doesn't kill Ripley, obviously. She manages to kill it. And Jones, who we've not talked about. We, we have not. Jones was the crew's cat, who Ripley also manages to save. And, oh, oh who was it? Oh, it was, um, I cannot remember the guy's name. I think he was he was one of the cinematographers or something. I didn't I didn't really make a note about this, but it was just something that popped into my head. They didn't really do a premiere for the movie when it came out, but they obviously they had an opening weekend, uh, which we'll get to here in a bit. But everybody, even the people from England, went to L.A. for the opening, so that they could all go to the Egyptian theater for the opening weekend. I guess he was <laughs> he's sitting there opening weekend watching it and the scene where she goes back for the cat, she goes back for Jonesy, and uh, he's he's he. he uh, he said there was a distinctly African-American voice behind him going, leave the fucking cat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just yelling it out, you know. Um, <laughs> it's like Eddie Murphy. Yeah. There's <laughs> black people. Sorry, baby, we can't stay. Yeah. <laughs> to provide a visual for the heavy atmosphere, literally and figuratively, or the ambiance, Ridley Scott used lots of stage smoke. Most of the action takes place on board the spaceship Nostromo, which you mentioned. The sets are somewhat narrow, cramped, and claustrophobic. And they literally built that interior of the Nostromo. So once you were on set, you didn't leave the inside of that ship to go from one set to the next. Everything was connected. So once you were in it, you were in it. And the actors were like, it just added to the atmosphere. It added to the claustrophobia. Nicely because, done, Ridley. Yeah, to get out, you literally had to find the exit. <laughs> you couldn't. You couldn't just walk. You know, the, the, where the fourth wall would be missing. You just walk away towards the camera. No, you had to literally leave the ship to get out. So Ridley Scott actively encouraged a level of tension among the actors that translates to tension among the characters, who were you know supposed to be cooped up together on a spaceship for long periods of time. There was no backstory given for the, any of the characters. Ridley Scott had a backstory for everybody, and he went over it with the actors, but nothing like that's given in the movie. There's no exposition of prior stuff. You know, you do get the sense that these people, that they know each other intimately. There's some stuff that was filmed that kind of got cut out that hints that there's uh, not necessarily romantic relationships, but that there are sexual relationships, at least with like Ripley and Dallas because there's no backstory, you're kind of thrust into the story as the characters are. And the focus is on the creature, as it should be. Because what's the movie called? 
Star Wars. No. Oh, Star Beast. Beast. No. Hose. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I do want to talk about one scene. Can you guess the scene? Well, I'm assuming this is the scene where. So here, I, I'm going to give my little story, and that is, as a child, I oh. discussed how horror movies scared the bejesus out of me, which is uh-huh. why I'm not Catholic anymore because I have no bejesus left. <laughs> you like that, huh? Yeah. No, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm gonna have to remember that. <laughs> so I have seen the movie as an adult. Yeah. But I, I know the movie more through the Mad Magazine spoof of it. <laughs> oh man, I never saw that one. <laughs> and uh, there are two parts of it. One is I, I won't give the ending away in case you do. And if not, <laughs> go watch the damn movie. Yeah. Uh, but it shows like uh, something flying through the air because Superman had come out the year before, and they're like, "It's a bird. It's a plane." Why well, do you, Superman? <laughs> But but the best scene is, and I'm assuming this is the scene you mean, uh-huh. is that it has Ripley, and she goes, well, this seems to be a really boring part of the movie, so I'm going to strip to keep everybody's attention. <laughs> awesome. I am going to have to see if I can find that. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, the chestburster scene, uh, the pivotal scene in the movie, all of the actors knew what was going to happen. They'd all read the script, right? but none of them knew what was going to happen. <laughs> none of them knew what Ridley Scott had planned for the scene. They had to get it in one take. The stunned look on the actors' faces are genuine because none of them knew what to expect. The only one who had an idea was Tom Skerritt, and that's because he happened to be standing on set when they were doing the setup for it. So he had an idea. Now, the way they did it, they were they were sitting around eating, and uh, John Hurt's character Kane goes into seizures, convulsions, whatever, and they're holding him down. And this was the whole thing. Like I said, all these stunned expressions on their faces before they even do the thing where the thing actually comes out. What nobody knew was they had a tube uh, under his shirt running up to his chest, and as he's squirming around, you know, and they're trying to hold him down and everything, there's that burst of blood. And he he just kind of freezes, and they all just kind of stop, and they're all wide-eyed, like, what the hell was that? None of them knew that was coming. <laughs> well, they do that. Ridley Scott goes, cut, clear the set. Tom Skerritt kind of comes back in, and he watches him set up. So they, they set it up with a false body, you know, and there's a hole in the table, and John Hurt's there, and he's his arms and shoulders, and, you know, every, everything from, like, the armpits up is, is on the table. And, and uh, everybody comes back in, and they all know that it's going to come out of his chest. They didn't know about the copious amounts of fake blood that were going to be used. So when the blood sprays out, (laughs) again, stunned. They just, you know, Veronica Cartwright, and and if you get a chance to see any of the the behind-the-scenes stuff, they took the, because they had like uh, two cameras set up. They put both camera angles side by side, and they show the the behind-the-scenes as they do the, the scene. Ian Holm and Veronica Cartwright are on the same side. And it's almost like he sees it's about to come, and he sidesteps. And Veronica Cartwright takes the fake blood full in the face. <laughs> and, of course, it freaks her out because she wasn't expecting all that. And she slips, and she falls backwards. They cut that part out of the movie. But she falls backwards, and she was wearing cowboy boots, and she pointed out, you know, you look, you see my cowboy boots are sticking up in the air. And there's this void on the wall where she was standing. There's all this blood on the wall, but you can see her outline. Veronica-shaped outline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> their expressions those were genuine they were just in complete shock they were all just like what the hell and ridley scott he cuts it in the movie but again the behind the scenes stuff he let the camera run 
and they were just like, what the hell was that? <laughs> I, I need this in my life in 20 years so I can just laugh and laugh. <laughs> yeah. So Dan O'Bannon, he told the story. This is kind of going back to some of the stuff that was going on between him and Brandywine Films. He, he said, at the end of the first week of shooting, I asked to look at some of the dailies. And of course, the dailies are... They're, they're, they they're what, day, right? Yeah, they're what you shot that day. You you get it processed real quick and you sit down and you go through it and you kind of see what's working and what's not and you maybe make some changes as you go along based on what you're seeing on the dailies. So anyway, he, he said, I asked to look at some dailies and Gordon Carroll said, you're not allowed to come to dailies. I said, what do you mean? He said, those are privileged. I said, Gordon, surely if anyone has a right to look at dailies, it's me. I didn't remember Dan O'Bannon with Ron Shusett's help. And now Ron Shusett actually said, he, he said, I actually did not put my name on the film. And he was okay with that. But you can remember, this is, this is Dan O'Bannon's script. I mean, he wrote it. He wrote the original script. So anyway, you know, he, he says, well, if anybody's got a right to look at it, it should be me. And uh, Gordon said, sue me. <laughs> He said, I did have a much simpler thing than suing him. I went up into the projection booth with the projectionist. I stood and I looked and I looked and I saw it and I was impressed. I was pleased. I said, oh yeah, that looks good. And for the first time, I began to see the value of getting a director whose focus was so strongly on the photographic look of the film. All right. So the alien itself, we haven't really talked a whole lot about it. Just the penis. Yeah. <laughs> the eye sockets. Yeah. <laughs> Dixon's uh, calls. That's what we're here for. Good night, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, the alien was performed by. Okay, so he. I guess he was originally from Nigeria, Baloji Badejo. But they said when they met him, uh, he had a North London accent. So I guess he grew up in London. But he was. Uh, he was spotted in a pub. Um, I guess somebody from casting or, or somebody from the crew saw this six foot ten really thin guy at a pub and went hey you want to you want to be in a movie <laughs> and uh yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah he, he signs up for it and they they send him off to uh tai chi and mime classes so that he can learn how to move and do all these slow graceful movements that you when you do see the alien move there's a few shots that they did. Uh, they did have like an acrobat do uh, the the scene where the alien kills Brett, where it comes down from the ceiling. They had an acrobat for that. But yeah, for the most part, it's Beloji Badejo that you see in the suit. And like I said, uh, Giger designed the alien, the face hugger, and the chest burster. The face hugger was refined by Dan O'Bannon, and uh, both it and the chest burster were built by Roger Dickin. Did, did his family also make a cider? <laughs> yeah, Dickens cider. Yeah, yeah, they made an alcoholic version too, the uh, hard Dickens cider. Yeah. Thank you, Bob and Tom show. <laughs> um, Dickens may have also designed the final version of both. And earlier in one of the Sigourney Weaver quotes, I mentioned Carlo Rambaldi. Rambaldi worked in effects departments on, on several movies. King Kong, E.T. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The actual Dune movie that did come out. Conan the Destroyer, the Conan second the Barbarian. Yeah. yeah, the second movie, the second Conan movie Arnold did, and Silver Bullet, which is based on a Stephen King graphic novel, Cycle of the Werewolf. Um, but R Rimbaldi, he built the mechanics for the alien's head, you know, for the jaw and the tongue and everything like that. So while Giger designed it, what it looked like, Rimbaldi was the one that figured out the the mechanics of everything else. So 
Veronica Cartwright and Sigourney Weaver get invited down to the, the effects shop to see the chestburster as it was being made. That's where Veronica Cartwright uh, said the chestburster looked like a penis with teeth. <laughs> so the, they finish the movie, and before it comes out, they do some screenings. Alan Ladd Jr. and his, his then wife, they went to see a screening. It was like a four-hour long cut. He said she was so traumatized she wouldn't come out of the room. And I, I don't know if it's a hotel room or what. He said she wouldn't come out of the room for a day and a half. <laughs> that, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. So the film opened on May 25th, 1979 in limited release in the U.S., then in wide release on June 22nd. And it opened in the U.K. on September 1st at the Edinburgh International Film Festival with wide release there on September 6th, which should be the day this episode comes out. <laughs> so the Not 40th anniversary, <laughs> yeah, 40th anniversary of the wide release in the UK of Alien should be the day this episode comes out. See, that's how much we love the UK. Yeah. And it's not because we're lazy bastards who didn't get it done in time for the US. Some of the various audience reactions, according to members of the cast and crew, people running out of the theater, <laughs> um, supposedly, oh, I don't remember who it was. I think it was David Geiler that said this. I could be wrong. No, I think somebody else said that David Geiler and Walter Hill had to do this. Supposedly, Alan Ladd Jr. was one of them that tried to get up and run out of the theater, and Geiler and Hill held him down. <laughs> I don't know, because of the other story with Alan Ladd Jr.'s ex-wife, so I, I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> I feeling so, funny. Yeah. not feeling so bad about being a seven-year-old kid who didn't want to go see this movie. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I guess at one of the opening or one of the, the screenings, an usher keeled over or passed out. People were throwing up. One theater, ow, who was it that told the story? I think it was Ridley Scott. He said uh, he met one theater owner. He imitated this, I wanted to say Texas accent. Anyway, the theater owner said uh, they got so tired of cleaning up the vomit, they cut out the chestburster scene. But then that kind of ruins how you know what's going on. Exactly. But <laughs> uh, whatever. Yeah. So I mentioned the Egyptian theater before. It's in Hollywood. And opening weekend, they ran it for 48 hours straight, just like on a loop. It's a movie house. It's not like a multiplex theater that you have nowadays. It's, or at least at the time, it was one giant screen. Uh, we had a couple theaters like that where, where James and I grew up. We had the, was it the Ritz in Rockville? Still there. Just the yeah, one theater still, yeah. One it's screen. still there. Yeah, it's, it's just one screen. And, you know, and these, these were the kind of places that were built back in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, the golden age of the silver screen. Yeah, so it'd be a movie house with the balconies, and, you know, it was a big event to go to the movies. You got dressed up and... They had the uh, fancy little ropes and velvet ropes and stuff. Yeah. And the Indiana Theater in Terre Haute. Yes, yeah, that's the other one I was going to mention, which is also still there. Although I'm not entirely sure how much they still show movies, but I know the Ritz does. So anyway, yeah, the Egyptian Theater in Hollywood, they ran it for 48 hours straight opening weekend. The line to see it was around the block the whole 48 hours from, from what several people said. Dan O'Bannon, who was nervous after the failure of Dark Star and angry over the treatment that he was getting from the guys at Brandywine Film, wasn't going to go see the movie opening weekend. He got in his car and he just drove around. Ron Shusette said maybe he'd been drinking. I don't, I'm not entirely sure. Although the way Dan kind of told the story, it, it kind of made it sound like Dan may have been drinking. So, <laughs> <laughs> But eventually, 
he makes his way downtown and uh, he parks near the Egyptian theater and he sees the line going around the block. Ron Shusett's there and he sees him. He brings him over and they go into the theater. O'Bannon, he describes it as kind of like a dream. All these people are here to see my movie and the theater's full and they're reacting appropriately at the appropriate times instead of not laughing at the joke. So he said he started crying tears of joy over the whole experience. Awesome. You know? So yeah, of course they have to screen it for the Academy, you know, like the Academy Awards people. Ron Shusette was talking about that. He said that he and O'Bannon went to the screening and uh, Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty were sitting behind them. He said they were screaming like little boys <laughs> and they, and they, they came up to him afterwards and they were like, Man, you guys scared the shit out of us. <laughs> uh-huh, that's right, Jack. <laughs> Dan O'Bannon had this to say. Alien fulfilled a genre and thereby put a cap on it until they start making feature movies in IMAX or in virtual reality. I don't think it's going to be possible to do anything that's that novel in the scary sci-fi monster vein. So the way O'Bannon kind of felt about it was that nobody's ever going to be able to do a sci-fi monster movie like this again. So how'd the movie do, James? Well, the movie did pretty well. I didn't compare it to everything, but if you'd like to know, I looked up Adjusted for Inflation. Okay. For the yeah. eight alien movies, so Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Resurrection, Predator, Covenant, Requiem, Prometheus. Want to guess which one is at the bottom? Adjusted for Inflation? Adjusted for Inflation. Which one did the poorest? <laughs> Probably because it's my least favorite out of all of them, Requiem. That would be correct. Okay. Uh, it kind of got panned by a lot of people, including fans. <laughs> yeah, it deserved it. So it it's really uh, unadjusted gross was, you know, 42,000. Uh, adjusted gross, 53. Yeah. And so a million, you know. But, yeah. Uh, what would you say is the top adjusted for gross? Aliens, the sequel. Nope. Alien. The, the first, first one. First one. First one beat them the, all out. Nice. Nice, yeah, nice, nice. Quite a bit. Aliens is number two, though. Just over 200 million. Okay. But Alien uh, is over 280 million. Nice. Yeah. Alien and Aliens, Prometheus, Alien 3, Alien vs. Predator, Resurrection, Covenant, AVP Requiem. Okay. And, and of course, keep in mind that Alien had a good seven-year head start on Aliens and decades yeah. on some of these others. So yes. they could catch up. But yeah. But, I mean, it's sick of price. It's not, it's not including DVD sales. True. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say they'd have to get re-released in theaters and in all honesty, outside of the first two, I don't see any of them ever getting re-released in theaters. Yeah. Yeah. Probably not. But would you also like to know what it, uh, awards it got? Yes. I, 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 I know have, it got some or at least I have, one. <laughs> I have I have it here. I feel like I'm doing the David Letterman top 10 thing. Here in my hand. <laughs> uh, so you probably already know that it won the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. Yes. So yeah, HR Giger, Carlo Rimbaldi, Brian Johnson, Nick Alder, and Dennis Ayling. Okay. Uh, but is also nominated for Best Art Direction, which was Michael Seymour, Leslie Dilley, Roger Christian, and Ian Whitaker. But, but it lost to all that jazz. Okay. Well, I, I guess I can see that. It's Art Direction, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, but some of the neat things for – oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to say, but, you know, to me, that's like Star Wars losing Best Picture to Annie Hall. Really? Wow. <laughs> anyway. No yeah. politics there. Yeah. <clears throat> On the Brit side, I uh, was nominated for a BAFTA, the British Academy of Film and Television Arts, for yes. Best Costume Design, uh, Best Editing, Best Supporting Actor, and Most Promising Newcomer. 
for a leading film role. Nice. Uh, didn't, didn't win, but was nominated. And those were, uh, in order, John Molo, Terry Rawlings, John Hurt, and Sigourney Weaver. Nice. And give them credit. Yeah. Um, but the Nerdy Things uh, won the Saturn, uh, won Saturn Awards, which is the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films. Yeah. These are the people who really get in there. Yes. But yeah, won uh, Best Science Fiction, Best Direction for Ridley Scott, Best Supporting Actress for Veronica Cartwright. Nice. And was uh, nominated for Best Actress for Sigourney Weaver, Best Makeup for Pat Hay, Best Special Effects for Brian Johnson and Nick Alder, and Best Writing for Dan O'Bannon. Nice. And won the Hugo Award, which is another huge, because yes. it's a World Science Fiction Convention, won the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. Nice. Nice, nice, nice. Yes. And uh, as a grain of salt thing, when you look up Wikipedia, because I, I looked up a few things, it tells you it won the 1979 Academy Award, and I'm thinking, well, that's bullshit. It came out in 1979. It won the 1980, if you go to the Academy Awards website. Ah, uh, okay. So again, always check. Wikipedia is great. Always check it. Yes. <laughs> you mentioned Dan O'Bannon getting that award. Right. Okay. This was kind of what I was going to end on with this, unless you had more. I, I do, actually. Um, do you well, remember the, the TV show that they based this off of? TV show. Right. No. Now, they had, to, they had to change it up a little bit because there's some lawsuit about the term alien. So they ended up calling the main protagonist Gordon Shumway, and they had to go with alien life form. <laughs> Alf. <laughs> nice. But cats were involved in that one too, and that cat yes. always survived. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Alf. Oh, I loved Alf. Uh. That was an awesome show. Cat, 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 cat. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, no, go ahead. I'm good. Okay. <laughs> After everything was done, but before the movie comes out, Dan O'Bannon gets a thing in the mail it's a notice of intended writing credit from 20th century fox and it says that the screenplay credit for alien was going to be walter hill and david guyler dan o'bannon's name is not on it uh, he calls up walter hill and according to o'bannon he begs him to have his name added hill said and i am quoting o'bannon here dan i've been through these arbitrations before and you win some, you lose some. Now, I'm kind of taking that as O'Bannon saying that Walter Hill's threatening him, or at least trying to tell him, don't bother because you're going to lose this. Kind of sounds like it. Yeah. But O'Bannon says, okay, you win some, you lose some. So he calls the Writers Guild and requests an arbitration and gets it. So he fills out all the stuff, sends it in. Now, up to this point, he had been willing to share credit with Hill and Guyler mostly because he thought some of the stuff that they wrote and put in the movie was dumb and he didn't want to take all the blame for the stuff that he thought was dumb. So, you know, that way he could go, oh, okay, yeah, that they, they wrote that stupid part. <laughs> but when he got this thing from Fox and, you know, and, and Walter Hill basically said what he said, O'Bannon decided that he didn't just want partial credit, he wanted full credit. So he sends this in to the Writers Guild of America or, or whatever it is, you know, out in Hollywood, requesting full credit, and he gets it. Hill and Guyler's names came off of it. And it, it was, the screenplay was solely credited to Dan O'Bannon. According to the Writers Guild, you are not supposed to complain about an arbitration result. But Hill apparently went around for five years saying that O'Bannon had screwed him out of the screenwriting credit, screenplay, whatever. 
until O'Bannon calls his lawyer up and he says, you tell Walter Hill, if he doesn't stop, I'm going to come after him. And apparently Walter Hill has never said another word about it since. Walter Hill and David Geiler have partial script or screenwriting screenplay credit on almost all of those other movies. What, like I said, with the exception of the, the other two Ridley Scott movies, but Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection, Alien vs. Predator, and Alien uh, vs. Predator Requiem, Hill and Geiler have credit on all those. If you look at the quality of all those movies, with, <laughs> with the exception of Aliens, which was largely written by James Cameron when he came on as director, they're nowhere near as good as the first two movies. You know, Alien, Dan O'Bannon, and Aliens, James Cameron. Everything that Hill and Geiler wrote without the two of them has not been as good. That's my opinion. Although I'm sure most people would agree those are the two best movies out of all eight movies that have been made. Now the money sure backs it up. So there you go. I guess that's our episode on the 40th anniversary of Alien. Not too much on the, you know, what actually takes place in the film, but lots of behind the scenes stuff that I thought was really interesting. I sat down and I started watching these documentaries. And there was just so much stuff. I don't know how long this episode's going to be, but it easily could have been three hours if I had had the time to write everything down that I thought was really interesting. Yeah, we could even went to some of the shorts they just put out for the 40th anniversary, too, that are online you can go check yeah. out, which are, are good. I'll, I'll just say the few I watched are, are yeah. neat. I hope you enjoyed it. I uh, hope you learned something. Yeah, and if not, maybe you're drinking also. Yeah. <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, I'm Jody. And I'm James. See you later. <laughs> Bye. The Macabre Manor is brought to you by the Twin Terrors. All rights reserved. Stay tuned for some fun outtakes. Yeah, I was, I was going to, I thought about trying to ride that Starbeast joke as long as I could. And I, I, then I got thinking about it. And I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than riding the Hose Beast as long as you can. <laughs> See, I told you. <laughs> <laughs> this was the story that came out of the Alien Legacy documentary. Mia Bonzanego, she was H.R. Giger's assistant. She told the story, I guess, while they were getting started making the film. Several of the cast and crew went to Zurich to uh, Giger's home, and this was the first time any of them were going to see the full-sized alien model that Giger had done. And Sigourney Weaver was with them. And Mia had set out some glasses and a bottle of cognac and they come in and they're walking past and she's offering them the cognac and Sigourney Weaver's like, Oh no, I don't, I don't need any cognac. Walks into the room and immediately comes running back out and goes, give me the cognac. <laughs> after seeing the, after seeing the full sized alien model that Giger had built. And, and I meant to throw this in there earlier too, or O'Banion as Giger called him. <laughs> <laughs> it's Dan O'Banion. No. Um, <laughs>